Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. Darcy, Merry Christmas to you. Merry holidays to you. <laughs> Happy holidays. <laughs> um, okay, we've got some good, interesting stuff for the podcast today. Um, I want to start out with an article. <laughs> I freaking love this, and I'm definitely posting a picture of this on Instagram because it's just too good to not post. But there was okay. an article that came out in the New York Post a few weeks back. Doug the Ugly Spud vies for the world's largest potato record. <laughs> you definitely did not see this one because you hate potatoes, right? I don't, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it says, <laughs> Idaho ain't got nothing on this potato. Colin and Donna Craig Brown of Hamilton, New Zealand were working in their garden August 30th when Colin unexpectedly struck at something big and hard with his weeding hoe. Curious, the pair dropped, the ground, dropped to the ground to dig around the massive object below the surface. I'm sure they thought it was like a treasure chest or something, and were like, we're going to get eat me. They eventually pried <laughs> out a potato. <laughs> they thought it was some kind of fungus, though, initially, and they peeled off the skin and put a bit in their mouth. Ew. Ew. Turns out Why it would they a, eat it if they thought it was a fungus? I don't know. They tur- it turned out it was a potato, and a monstrous one at that. We couldn't believe it, Donna told the Associated Press. It was just huge. So huge, in fact. At a whopping 17 pounds, equivalent to... What? Equivalent to 40 or so medium-sized russet potatoes. It may be the largest potato ever recorded. Are russet potatoes like the regular ones? Yeah, they're like the baked potatoes. Okay. In a weird twist, there's no telling how the outsized vegetable even came to be. The proud potato parents said because they hadn't planted potatoes in the area of their garden that they found it in. Uh. They now believe it may have been growing there for years. It's I a, mean, yeah. It's a mystery to me, Colin said. It's one of nature's little pleasant surprises. The ugly spud named Doug, a word, a wordplay on Doug, you know, like Doug the potato up, has since oh. become a local celebrity <laughs> in their community, with Colin even fashioning a wagon to lug Doug around for all the neighbors oh to see. Okay, settle down. This they guy. put a hat on him. They put him on Facebook. They took him for walks, and they gave him sunshine, Donna said. It's all a bit of fun. It's amazing what entertains people. They know it's going to rot. He literally had this wagon that he was pulling it around on. It's absolutely astounding. <laughs> the, Craigs, the Craig Browns took Doug to a local farming store for more official weigh-ins for others to witness. According to the Guinness World Records, the current record holder for the largest potato goes to a 2011 tuber from Britain that weighed in at just under 5 kilograms, which is about 11 pounds. Okay. Doug handily beats the reigning champ, weighing in at 7.8 kilograms, or just over 17 pounds. Alas, though, Doug's tour is taking its toll with the Titanic tater slowly dying out and beginning to form mold. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. He was getting podgy, Colin said. (laughs) Ew. Or he was getting pongy, Colin said of its odor. The gardeners continue to await a call from Guinness while the hulking root sits in their freezer for preservation. And there's more in store for Doug. One amateur distiller has expressed interest in using it to make potato vodka, said Colin. So there you go. You might have some use for it after all. Not after it's moldy. Well, no. They put it in the freezer, so it wouldn't mold. Can you freeze a potato? Yes, you can. Oh. You're not going to want to eat them after they're frozen, but you can still make that vodka with them. Whoop, whoop. You know. Doug, the world's largest potato. I think it's funny that they named it. Like, really? Uh, Yeah. Hilarious. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, let's jump into the main case for the day. I'm going to talk about a man by the name of John List. (gasps) Yes. Okay. John List. 
He was born in Bay City, Michigan, September 17th, 1925. So he was born in the 20s. Mm -hmm. He was the only child of German-American parents. His father's name was John Frederick List. Frederick is a really common German name, by the way. Yes, it is. I have like 25 German relatives with the name Frederick. Frederick was one of the Kaisers. Absolutely. Um, And Alma Barbara Florence List. That That was his mom. So... The family was devout Lutheran, and his father was a Sunday school teacher. So the year before his father died, so his father died in 1944, mm-hmm. List had graduated from Bay City Central High School. So his okay. father died when he was pretty young. Mm-hmm. And then in 1943, John List enlisted in the United States Army. So interesting. We have a lot of killers that have this military history, don't we? Well, it was also at the time. I mean, this was right in the middle of World War II. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was a laboratory technician during World War II. Interesting. He was not a soldier, like, on the field fighting it out. He yeah. was a laboratory technician. I didn't even know they had laboratory technicians during World War II. Like, what does a laboratory technician do during that war? Uh, I don't know. In any case, I mean, it shows to me that he had to have been somewhat intelligent. Because he wouldn't be, you know, he'd be out on the field if he was just an ordinary dude, right? He'd be fighting Mm -hmm. with, like, guns and whatnot. Um, He was discharged in 1946 and enrolled in the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He got a bachelor's degree there in business administration. And then he went on to get a master's degree in accounting. Okay. Um, At that point as well, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in ROTC. Okay. Which is, like college and high school military club kind of a thing it is oh reserve officer training corps yes that's what it stands for um by 1950 in the towards the end of 1950 the korean war had escalated mm-hmm. and list got recalled for active military service so he went to fort eustis in virginia do you know where that okay. you know where that base is I don't. Is it still there anymore, even? I have no idea. Um, at that point, he met Helen Morris Taylor. She was the widow of a man who was killed in action. He was an infantry officer who was killed mm. in action in Korea. Jeez. And she had been living nearby with her young daughter, Brenda. John obviously fell in love with this young woman pretty quickly, and they married in December 1951. So, like, he, he married her pretty quick. Like, it took mm-hmm. a year for that. Which I think that was pretty common back then, though. I don't think yeah. they had super long engagements, particularly if the man was involved in some sort of military service. Mm-hmm. They were married in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. And then the family moved to Northern California. But at that particular period in time, List, I think, kind of stood out because he had these... He had a master's in accounting, right? So mm-hmm. it's, you're not going to put somebody with a master's in accounting out on the field shooting people up. So he was reassigned to the finance corps. Okay. So he is working back in some dusty office somewhere. And he completes his second tour in 1952 and starts working for an accounting firm in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. The beautiful city of Detroit, which I'm sure back then it was booming because post-World War II, Michigan was an amazing place to be. There was industry, there was car making, there was a lot of factories, and it was, um, the population was booming, the country was doing well. It was Hitsville, USA, man. 
Exactly. There was music coming from that place. It was just an amazing place to be, I think, back then. Yeah. Not at all kind of what certain areas of it are nowadays. And I can say that because I've been to Detroit many, 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 yeah. many, many times. And I've seen a lot of, once the industry left the area and it kind of died out a little mm -hmm. bit, there's many, many dilapidated buildings, um, abandoned houses. It's just really a very different place now. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's sad to see that the places and the things and the buildings and the industry that used to be so beautiful and so loved and cared for and so um, well cared for at that point now just completely abandoned. Yeah. But... Um, so he's working for that accounting firm, and then he worked as an audit supervisor at a paper factory in Kalamazoo. Okay. So he and his wife have three children. In addition to the daughter she already had. Yes. Okay. So there are four total. Um, by 1959, he rises up to the position of a general supervisor at the company's accounting department, but he's having some issues at home because Helen, wifey, mm -hmm. the love of his life, is an alcoholic mm. and she is kind of becoming unhinged very slowly okay um and i think there's some reasons behind this that we may kind of get into later uh behind what's going on with her mentally okay um but she's becoming more and more unstable so by 1960 though brenda the the daughter that helen had from her first husband marries and leaves the house okay so list then takes the family to rochester new york mm-hmm at that point, he's going to take a job with Xerox, which I think was a relatively Huge new company. Huge company. Back then. But yeah. But just once that was becoming a thing, yeah. um, I think that it was an incredible place to be if you wanted to show the world that you were a top-notch businessman. Yeah, it was like like IBM. like It was like the top-of-the-top top corporate America thing. I actually had a friend that worked for Xerox for a good amount of time, and she made an incredible amount of money. Yeah. Um, before the company kind of took a, a downturn yeah. in recent times. But um, he eventually got to the position of director of accounting services. So he I had a very that's high, high up, yeah. Yeah, executive type of a position. Um, but 1965 comes along and he accepts a position as a vice president and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. Okay. So at that point, then he takes the wife and children and then mom, mommy dearest, and moves them into Breeze Knoll which is a 19-room Victorian mansion, and it's located at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield, New Jersey. Can you imagine having a 19-room Victorian mansion? Like, I, the idea that houses have names is, like, so beyond to me. Like, that's something that belongs in England. I need, we need to name our house. Do it. <laughs> We're not 19 rooms, but it sounds name posh it, to Jerry. name your house. <laughs> I, I think I already did name it. I named it Elizabeth or oh, okay. Bessie. Bessie for Bessie, sure. Bessie, yeah. But they're not naming it like the name of a person. They're naming no, it. No, no, no. Like that's Noel. that's like, like an estate. Yeah. It's posh and fancy. Yeah. 19 rooms. So like you could literally have a bedroom and with your siblings and they have their own bedroom and you never see them. Yeah. <laughs> 19 rooms. Like, Isn't that the dream? Like dream. Not 19, right? year, 19 rooms and never seeing your siblings. <laughs> yeah. So at some point, I heard that Helen had um, syphilis. Did you hear that as well? I've never heard that. Interesting. Um, and that was, I think, the reason behind her mental illness. So evidently, 
Helen List was infected with syphilis by her first husband, a soldier who was killed in Korea. Wow. But because syphilis is not infectious in its later phases, she didn't pass it on to John List or her children. But it developed into, like, tertiary. Yeah. Although she suffered several miscarriages during her first marriage related to that. But, Hmm. um... Wait, how was she infected by her first husband but didn't infect her husband if it's not infectious? Because it was latent by that point. Oh, yeah, okay. You understand? Yeah, I do. So... He, he felt he'd been deceived by her, essentially, because yeah. she'd kept it a secret. So neurologists at his later trial testified that she had tertiary syphilis and had hidden the disease for years from her doctors and family. So let's just talk about this for a second. Um, when you had an STD back then, like, it was huge. Yeah. Very, very shameful. And although she really didn't have any... Um, reason to believe that she deserved it or she wasn't in a high risk type of a lifestyle yeah but when you had men back then who were in the military oftentimes they saw sex workers when they were overseas and it wasn't considered a big deal it was just oh boys being boys and oh men do men things and right he clearly brought syphilis back from overseas and infected his wife we don't know that he brought it from korea he could have gotten it somewhere i said overseas i didn't say korea well, he could have gotten it on base. He could too. have gotten it anywhere. Yeah. But in any case, um, let's talk a little bit about tertiary syphilis. Just so the readers and listeners, so the listeners can kind of understand. So basically, tertiary syphilis is the final stage of, sim- is of the disease. Mm-hmm. And it's characterized by progressive dysfunction of a number of organ systems. The clinical consequences of this stage emerge slowly over years from a background of latent syphilis or syphilis that's not really actively infecting the body. Um, It's due to long-term inflammation of infected organs due to the chronic presence of this particular disease. 30% of untreated individuals with latent syphilis develop signs and symptoms of tertiary syphilis. So according to the CDC, tertiary syphilis refers to a particular type of psychiatric manifestation which can create memory loss or personality changes or late neurosyphilis i don't know if i said this before but a person with tertiary syphilis it's a sexually transmitted disease there are different stages and a person who has tertiary syphilis has reached the late stage this stage is most serious an infected person may suffer from a range of complications because of it including damage to the eyes hearing bones skin nervous system and even the heart in some cases, a person with tertiary syphilis is eventually disabled, and some people may even die from the disease. Jesus. If it's, detected early, if it's detected early, a person may never reach the tertiary stage. An early case of syphilis can usually be treated successfully. An individual with tertiary syphilis has typically passed through two stages of the disease, which are referred to as primary and secondary. While there are symptoms at both stages of this disease, some people may not seek treatment. And I don't think that Helen sought treatment back then. I think it was somewhat shameful for her. In in fact, some may decide not to seek medical attention because their symptoms eventually go away. The problem with this is that a person may spread a significant amount. A person may spend a significant amount of time without symptoms yet still be infected with syphilis. For example, a person may begin the tertiary stage up to 15 years after primary infection and before it develops, he may go into a latent stage in which there are no symptoms. 
It's important to note that some people who have syphilis mm. never develop tertiary stage symptoms. Up to 30% of infected people do develop them, however. Once the stage is reached, a person may suffer from damage to various parts of the body, including the nervous system, brain and heart, eyes, etc. They also can suffer damage to blood vessels and bones, and the liver may be damaged as well. When a person has tertiary syphilis, he may exhibit a range of symptoms. In some cases, a person may exhibit jerky movements or experience paralysis in parts of the body. In some cases, numbness is a symptom of tertiary syphilis, and dementia may occur as well. They may go blind gradually, and the damage caused by the syphilis is severe. The complications can eventually lead to death. So I think she developed this tertiary syphilis sometime after having her children, and because God. it was in the latent stages, she didn't transfer it to John or the children. But I think for her, it was somewhat shameful. And I think she may have been experiencing the beginning signs of dementia, some right. sort of neurological type of an issue, which could have impacted what happened later. So, mm, okay, let's go back to what happened. Okay. So November 9th, 1971, evidently, from what I understand, he had lost his job and had been going to the train station daily and pretending like he was going to mm -hmm. work. Yeah, he had lost his job a considerable amount of time before all of this happens. But every day he still goes through the routine. He leaves the house in a suit. He takes his briefcase <laughs> and he just goes and sits like at a cafe. Yes, or at a train station yeah. or whatever, reads the paper, yeah. does whatever he needs to do. Yeah. So it's my understanding that he was in pretty grave financial, mm -hmm. like dire straits. Mm -hmm. Like when you have a 19 room mansion, like there's a lot of expense right. involved with that. And since this man has no job, I don't believe, I feel like the pressure and the stress were beginning to build for him on a daily basis. And he, so had, he, he had been an executive, and so his wife did not work, kind of a thing, and that was the only income. Yes, so I believe he had been borrowing money. But on November 9th, he waited at home with a 9mm Stenter 1912 semi-automatic handgun. This, and his father's Colt 22 caliber revolver. So his children at that point, it's the afternoon, are at school, and his husband or his wife is at home, Helen. She's 46 at that point, and again, she's in the that last stages of tertiary syphilis. Mm -hmm. And he shoots her in the back of the head. Then he goes upstairs. To his mother had kind of a, a, a place upstairs in the mm -hmm. house, a separate like a mother-in-law mother-in-law yeah. suite, so to speak. She's 84 years old at that point, mm -hmm. and he shoots her above the left eye. Jesus. And then one by one, as his children come home from school, he starts with Patricia, 16, and then Fred Frederick, 13, and shoots them in the back of the head as well. He then. Makes himself lunch, drives to the bank to close his and his mother's bank accounts, and then he drives to Westfield High School to watch his older son play soccer. His older son, John Jr., is 15, and his, he has a soccer game that afternoon. Mm -hmm. So he then, you know, watches this entire game. He's got four dead people mm -hmm. in the house at home, and he's watching a soccer game. Yeah. And just chill as can be, drives John Jr. home, and then shoots him as well. And evidently, it's my understanding that they shot him repeatedly. Um, there was some evidence of misfire. I think and he also walked into the, son, the house and saw what was going on. Yes, yeah. and he defended him. They yeah. said his son had attempted to defend himself. Yeah. So there were defensive wounds that kind of showed as well. Then, List drags the bodies of all of these 
dead people and puts them on sleeping bags in the ballroom. So his 19-room Victorian mansion has a ballroom, by the way. Yes, it does. And he put, lines them all up on the sleeping bags and puts them in the ballroom. He could not carry his mother from the attic, for the apartment in the attic, which was where she had been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine she was probably very heavy at that yeah, point, and he's unable to carry her down. So he leaves her up there. He then writes a five-page letter to his pastor and sets it on his desk. He says, there's way too much evil in the world, and he killed his family to save their souls, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. He then cleans up the crime scenes. He wipes up the blood, which I'm sure there was blood from him dragging oh, yeah. various bodies throughout the house. He removes his own picture from all the family photographs. Which, can you imagine? Back that's a then, really like, smart thing to do. Like, yeah. I'm not trying to tell people how to get away with crimes, but, like, that's a very forward-thinking person. But can you imagine coming into the house to investigate later, and it's like you look at every picture, and there's a hole cut out. It'd be eerie. the father. It just seems like it would be super, super creepy. Yeah. He then turns on the radio to this religious music station and leaves. This was November 9th, mm-hmm. so just before, you know, Thanksgiving. And he left all the lights on in the house. Yes. The murders were not discovered until December 7th, nearly a month after everything happened. And part of the reason for this is because the family was somewhat reclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and John had also sent notes to the schools. And... Basically, anything the children were involved in, he basically said that they were visiting their grandmother, who mm-hmm. wasn't doing well in North Carolina for a few weeks. So they wouldn't be in school, they wouldn't be at part-time jobs, they wouldn't be at you know whatever else they were involved in. And it worked because Helen's mother was really ill yeah. and had canceled the visit to come see them because of it. Um, but had she made the trip, she would have probably been another victim. She would have right. been the sixth, sixth victim here. He stopped all the deliveries because back then people had milk delivered and Mm -hmm. they had newspaper and mail and all kinds of other things. So he managed to stop all the deliveries for the milk and the newspaper and all that good stuff. And the neighbors happened to notice that all the rooms were lit up. Mm -hmm. All the lights were on with no activity going on. Yeah. And the light bulbs started burning out one by one. Yeah, because they were on all the time. Can you imagine how creepy that would be? No. Um, Especially with the music. Oh, yeah. Once mm-hmm. the neighbors saw that the lights were going out, they they called the police. Yeah. The police then enter through an unlocked window into the basement, and then they look around the house and find the bodies in the ballroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so according to, you know, reports from this area back then, there were not, there was not a lot of violent crime. There hadn't been a lot of violent crime in the last decade, right? Mm-hmm. So, but this case received national attention because it was the most notorious kind of crime in New Jersey since the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. Yeah. Right. Which we did cover in an earlier case too, right? Yes. Yeah. So once they find these bodies in the ballroom, they're just understandably horrified and they mm-hmm. launch this nationwide manhunt and hundreds of leads pour in and police investigate each and every one of them. But because all the photographs of John List had been destroyed, it was extremely challenging for them to try to t- 
tell people or show people. You know, back then they would put like a, a yeah. newspaper article and put the person's picture so you could be on the lookout for them. Which, again, to your point earlier, brilliant. Destroying yep. all the pictures. So, and then they can't, they have to describe what he looks like rather than actually showing people, which is not nearly as effective. Right. Right. And police, you know, run down all these leads and, and they don't find anything. But they find the family car parked at JFK Airport in New York City. Mm hmm. But then they start investigating and they see that there's no record of him having gotten on a plane anywhere. Mm. Right? So, Alma, the mom, her body is flown to Michigan um, and put in the St. Lorenz Lutheran Cemetery. Okay. And Helen and the three kids are buried at the Fairview Cemetery in Westfield, New Jersey. Bree's knoll remained empty and unoccupied until it was destroyed by fire. Um, it burned down in August 1972. Mysteriously burned down in 1972. Mm -hmm. Nine months after the murders. Which, I just, I'm dying to know what this house looked like. I, I, I wish it was still there. I know. It's a, that's the thing. You can't see any, there's not any good pictures of the house. No. Um, the destruction um, was ruled an arson. And yeah. to this day, it's unsolved with no suspects. I mean, it was probably like kids in the neighborhood. I don't know. Maybe it was neighbors. They just were too spooked out or, by Yeah, the... it, was, it was somebody, like, it was like a revenge thing against John Lust. Like, that's kind of what I think. What's interesting to me, this little kind of tidbit, was that there was a stained glass skylight in the ballroom mm -hmm. that was rumored to be a Tiffany. And they said that it was worth about $100,000. Yeah. $100,000 equi then. Yeah, which is equivalent to about 620000 in yeah. 2020. Um, and it probably would have gone a long way to either clearing his debt or providing enough income to keep them afloat for a significant mm -hmm. amount of time, had they known, but it was destroyed in the fire as well. Interestingly enough as well, on a second side note, a new house was built there in 1974 on the site of the burned down. So this case just kind of floated around for a lot of years. I think they kind of gave up on it because they didn't have pictures of this guy and it just, nothing was showing any kind of yeah. leads on this. But the FBI found that list in by 1971 that list had traveled by train from new jersey to michigan and then to colorado so he'd gone to denver in early 1972 and took an accounting job surprise surprise because he had mm -hmm. all that experience mm -hmm. and he called himself robert peter bob quote unquote clark so he was bobster back then bobster <laughs> no I'm just, oh. <laughs> my mom's husband's named Bob and we sometimes oh. call him Bobster. His name, he went by Bob. Um, evidently he had a college classmate <laughs> whose name was Bob Clark. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they that. say that John List took that name from his college mm -hmm. classmate. But the classmate said later, I never knew him, like, mm. so I don't have yeah. anything to do with this. But from about 1979 to 86... He worked at a paper box manufacturer outside of Denver as their controller. So he kept it real low key and, mm -hmm. you know, wasn't getting in trouble or anything. He was just being a, a normal, average, ordinary person. He joined the Lutheran church, ran a carpool for shut-in church members, went to church gatherings in the, the, the church every Sunday, praying and whatnot. And he ends up meeting this army PX clerk. Her name was Dolores Miller, and they got married in 1985. So he's right. just doing everything he can to appear like this average, ordinary guy. 
Mm-hmm. They move um, in February 1988 to Virginia. Mm-hmm. And he's still calling himself Bob Clark by that point. And he starts working as an accountant again at a small firm of Madrea, Joyner, Kirkwood, or Kirkham, and Woody. Okay. Then, I don't know if you remember this show, this little gem called America's Most Wanted. Yes, I loved that show. So by May 1989, the America's Most Wanted folks say, hey, this is a really interesting case. Let's cover the case of John List and the murder of his family. And so Fox Television airs this show for the the 18-year-old crime. Mm -hmm. So it's been 18 years since this crime occurred by the time they aired on the show. And the segment features a clay bust. So they hired this forensic artist named Frank Bender. And he makes a clay bust based on what people described John List and, you know, his glasses and all the other things so they can try to recreate it because they didn't have the pictures of him, right? Well, and he didn't have glasses when this first happened. They also age progressed it. Yes. Because it had been like 20 years, right? So he's not going to look the same as he did when he murdered them. Mm -hmm. And this guy makes this incredible bust of John List. I have, like, I suck at looking at, like, artist rendering, um, like age progress. I suck at those and like recognizing a person. Like I, I, to me, some of like, I just can't see it. I like, you could put two people right beside each other yeah. and like, be like, this is the artist rendering and this is the who, real person. And I'd be like, I don't see it. I've never seen one that looks like more like the actual person. This is bonkers how much this bus it's looks crazy. like John List. Right down to the glasses. Yes. They did like forensic, FBI did forensic analysis on him. And they created this bus based upon what they anticipated he would look like now, 20 years later. And it's less than two weeks after the broadcast, and it's in June, and he's arrested at a Richmond accounting firm after a Denver neighbor recognized the description and alerted authorities. So he's not even living in Colorado anymore, but an old neighbor of his recognized this from the show... Yeah. Sees the bust of John List and says, oh, my God. That's Bob That's Clark. my neighbor, Bob. Yeah. That's my neighbor, Bob, and calls in, which yeah. is just incredible. And he alerts authorities, or he or she. I think it was a woman. List continued to stand by his alias for a few months after that, even after he's extradited to Union County, New mm-hmm. Jersey, in late 1989. But they have, the evidence they have by that point is just, they can't, it's irrefutable oh, yeah. by that point. And they also have a fingerprint match from his military records, right. which he didn't count on them. Right. That. Forgot he about that whole army thing. Yeah. So, and they also have just a ton of evidence found at the crime scene, including his little confessional letter. Oh, yeah. Which he left, which was like, oh, and they're so And probably left bad. fingerprints all over that, too. Yeah. And so, with all this evidence mounting against him, and just, it's too much, he confesses on February 16, 1990. And I feel like I should remember this. Like, it should have been a big news thing at that time, but I don't remember any of that. I yeah. would have been in high school at the time that, that happened. Like a freshman in high school, I think, or maybe junior high. But he confesses. So, basically, his excuse for all this was that he had financial difficulties mm-hmm. and that he was at crisis level by 1971. And that when he got laid off from the bank in New Jersey, in Jersey City... He was just humiliated and didn't want to have to share that with his family. So he'd pretty much <clears throat> gotten dressed up and pretended like he was still working. Did his same routine and he left home each day at the same time every morning. And 
spent the day at job interviews or at the train station reading newspapers until it was time to come home or restaurants or whatever else he probably did back yeah. then. He had skimmed money from his mother's bank accounts because he didn't want to default on the mortgage. Mm -hmm. So he was gradually kind of sort of embezzling money from his own family yeah, I say, to I don't try think to pay she for this. knew. I think he no. was stealing it. Well, she's 84. Like, yeah. is she really paying attention to her finances probably anyway? Probably not. She probably had allowed him to control it. He's an accountant. Mm -hmm. Like, how, why wouldn't she trust yeah. him to do that? But the family's financial issues just got worse and worse throughout the year. And List encouraged his kids to get part-time work. And he kind of couched it in the way that he was like, well, you need to learn maturity and responsibility, mm -hmm. so get a part-time job. But actually, it's like he, the family needs to stay afloat. Right. You need to help out. You could also move out of your 19-room house. Seriously. Downsize, for yeah. Pete's sake. Um, and then there's his wife's alcoholism and the syphilis, um, which she'd concealed for 18 years as well. And Helen, evidently, according to the testimony that was presented at the trial, had pressured him into marrying. And she had said she was pregnant and then insisted that they get married in Maryland. Hmm. And... I guess Maryland didn't require a premarital syphilis test. And a lot of other states had required this test prior to getting married. Really? It was mandated. Interesting. Isn't that weird? Yes, like, it's very you weird. You have to get a syphilis test in order to get married. That's really weird. You can't weird. get married if you have syphilis? Seemed crazy. Or you can't get married if you have an untreated syphilis, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Um, but she was deteriorating, like, mm -hmm. progressively at that point. And she said nothing about it to anyone, to her husband or the doctors, until 1969 when she had an exam and it, the condition was revealed. Um, but by then it had progressed so far that in, com in combination with her alcohol consumption, she was transformed from an attractive young woman to an unkept and paranoid recluse, quote unquote. Hmm. She frequently and often publicly humiliated List comparing his sexual prowess unfavorably with that of her first husband. So oh my. I imagine that, you know, back then she was in a bad situation. Her husband had died. She's got a daughter that she has to support on her own. And it wasn't necessarily all that common for women to do favorably in the workforce back then. Right. And so she probably did what she thought she had to do to be able to survive, which mm -hmm. was, you know, find a husband who's going to help support her. Mm -hmm. And it appears that she did that somewhat deceptively by, you know, hiding her condition and basically sort of manipulating the um, situation so that she could get him to marry her as soon as possible. Yeah. And, and he, when he found out about that, was enraged. They also diagnosed him, a court-appointed psychiatrist at the time, diagnosed him with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. And they said that that kind of created this vision within him where he had to either accept the situation or kill his family and send them to heaven. And there's like no in between. Yeah. So hmm. he didn't would never have accepted welfare. Right. It was considered an unacceptable option because number one, it would expose him and his family to ridicule and violate his authoritarian father's teachings. Right. Regarding the care and protection of family members. Particularly when you've got religious backgrounds with some folks back in that time period, it was like the man's job was to care for the family. Yes, and if he's the provider. If you were unable to care for the family, then you were this tremendous failure, yeah. unworthy of love, unworthy of you know existing even in the, the world. Yeah. 
April 12th, 1990, John is convicted and he gets convicted of five counts of first degree murder for his family members. Um, but at a sentencing hearing, he, at his sentencing, he denies any responsibility for his action, which surprise, surprise. Yeah. He says that because of his mental state at the time, he was unaccountable for what happened. Mm, no. There's a reason that you cut your picture, your face out of all the pictures. It sounds pretty premeditated. Because you knew it was wrong. Yeah. He says, I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. Mm. The judge was like, eh, not so much. John and Mill List, you don't have any remorse and you don't have any honor. Yeah. After 18 years, five months, and 22 days, quote unquote, it's now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. And then he gives them a sentence of five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively. Wow. Which was the maximum permissible penalty at that time. He, of course, files an appeal mm -hmm. saying that his judgment had been impaired because he had post-traumatic stress disorder due to military service. Yeah, right. Mm. 18, 20 years later, and no one's ever diagnosed you with this, and no one's ever seen any signs of this. Yeah. The one violent outburst you have is killing five people. I'm not certain that that's like... Seriously, right? Yeah. He also said that that letter that he left behind at the crime scene as his little confession mm -hmm. was a confidential communication to his pastor, therefore inadmissible as evidence. It doesn't work like that. No, no, absolutely not. But the federal appeals court said, eh, no. Yeah. Rejected. So eventually, though, they say that he did express remorse. He said, quote, I wish I had never done what I did. Um, this was to Connie Chung. She did an interview in twenty in two thousand two. Man, Connie, Connie Chung, Chung is a name I haven't heard in a minute. Right? Didn't she marry Maury Povich? Yep. Interesting. Um, I don't remember this interview either. I don't either. He said at that time that I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. When asked why he'd not taken his own life, he said he'd believed that suicide would have prevented him from going to heaven, where he hoped to be reunited with his family. How creepy is this guy? Yeah, it's super messed up. Like, the justification, because it still doesn't sound like he has any remorse for what he actually no. did. No, he somehow feels as though he's justified. Mm -hmm. He died of complications from pneumonia March 21st, 2008. He was 82 years old, and he was at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, the New Jersey Star-Ledger referred to him as the boogeyman of Westfield when they wrote about his death. Um, this is just such an interesting case. Yeah, it is. Because there's so many little side notes and they say that his daughter had taken up acting and that he was concerned that this was basically oh yeah that's um, a shameful akin profession to prostitution quote yeah. unquote yeah and that it was shameful and that the kids were starting to get rambunctious and they weren't listening to him and they were just and they were losing their church yeah and they were being morals. influenced by the world yeah. so it was his job as the protector and the father to end that so that they could go to heaven that he had to ensure that his family went to heaven yeah. and that his wife, uh, because she had this syphilis and lied to him, that you know she'd sinned and just made this horrific sin that was un unforgivable. Yeah. He, there's a lot of reasons he gives after the fact. But the real catalyst is that he didn't want to admit that he lost his job. Yeah. He was, that was shameful for him. Yeah. Like his but world like, was just falling apart and he didn't, have, he didn't know how to handle it. This case has just been covered on so many podcasts and TV shows and et cetera. I found that Tiffany um, skylight thing to be an interesting little piece of it. Yeah. And had they known, they could have perhaps sold that and made enough money to stay afloat. Right. 
Well, but that's the whole thing, though, because had they known they could have moved out of their house, and he never wanted to admit that he couldn't afford this grand lifestyle. Yeah. So that would have been another thing that he would have had to admit by selling that that uh, skylight. Absolutely. And kind of as another little weird side note, in 1972, they actually put him forward as a suspect in the D.B. Cooper case. Yes, we I covered that in too. Like, our, literally our first podcast was about yeah. D.B. Cooper. Um, because of the timing of his disappearance, yeah. it was two weeks prior to the airline hijacking, to the, this most famous airline hijacking, with multiple matches to the hijacker's description and the reasoning mm-hmm. that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose. So the FBI investigators actually questioned him when they captured him, and he denied any involvement, of course. Right. His name is actually still occasionally his name is actually still occasionally mentioned in articles about DB Cooper and documentaries. That's interesting. Although there's no direct, that would be wild. There's no direct evidence implicating him. Sure. And the FBI doesn't consider him a suspect. That would be wild. And then John Walsh, the America's Most Wanted host, in 2008 mm-hmm. donated the bust um, to a forensic science exhibit in the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington D.C. The museum collection can now be viewed at Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. (gasps) That's not far from me. Go see it. I might. Yeah. That's the craziest butt. Like, that's just freaking bonkers. Like, it looks literally exactly like it. Yeah. We'll post a picture of the bust in... um, on Instagram so you can kind of get an eye for that mm-hmm. so many people have done this case which is why I mean I'm interested in it but like it's been talked about ad nauseum and like I didn't want to talk yeah. about the same 25 things that every other podcast yeah. talks about with respect to this case but it's interesting um, that yeah, someone fascinating has such a high view of themselves that they determine that they're going to be the god the father mm-hmm. the protector the, the judge the jury everything for five people and determine yep. that they're not worthy of life and that you will you have the authority to end it to save them. And that you're doing them a favor. Yeah, it reminds me of the Lori Vallow case. Yes. Where she basically, she said her children and her ex-husband and they were zombies and they were dark and they were corrupted and so she had to kill them to save them so they could all... Well, I do think she is not competent. I think John List was very competent and knew what he was doing. He was very calculated and very cool. Yeah. But at the same time, you have to be mentally ill to kill five people. Right, but in the sense of legally insane, I I think that applies more to Lori Vallow than it does to him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not saying yeah. he was legally insane and to the point right. where he couldn't participate in his own trial because I think he was very clear. He was very, like, um, psychologically together right. enough to be able to stand trial and acknowledge the whole thing. Right. But you do have to be pretty cuckoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs to kill someone and think that you're doing them a favor. Yeah. So they can go to heaven. I mean, that's just bonkers. But um, let's do some emails. Yeah. We haven't done emails in a while. We haven't. Um, This one says, more good episodes to come. Hi, Sarah and Darcy. Relatively new listener here. I started listening about the time you started talking about Lori Vallow, which... Surprise, surprise. Now we're talking about her again. Yeah, right. I love the subtle humor you guys use. It's great that you don't take yourselves too seriously. (laughs) I also like how you cover the facts, legal points, and medical stuff without going into too much detail. I listen to you two all day while I work, and it's been great to hear. It's like listening to my friends chat and discuss true crime. So much fun. Just wanted to show my appreciation and encourage you two to keep it up. Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. That's pretty much like what we were doing when we were 
playing volleyball together as we would just sit and talk about these things. And I was like, why don't we record ourselves talking about these things? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, yes. Um, And podcasts became a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I kind of was listening to them before we started talking to each other, before we even met each other. But it really blew up, I think. Yeah. Once we decided we were going to do this. But next email says, can you recommend good software? Hey, ladies, I started listening to you two about a year ago, and I'm starting to think about beginning my own podcast soon. Don't worry, it's not true crime related. Can you recommend a good microphone and recording editing software? Reggie. Um, so what we use is, well, I use Audacity, and then um, because my something's wrong with my system with GarageBand on my computer, but we typically use GarageBand to do our editing. Mm-hmm. Um, both of us have Blue Yeti microphones, right? Yeah, I have the Yeti Nano, which I don't think they make anymore. Yeah, I looked for but it. But yet, but they do make the Yeti. And I have the Yeti microphone as well, the two hundred dollar version, um, which you can get on Amazon. They have pretty good prices for that. Make sure mm-hmm. you get a plug and play. Much easier to deal with, unless you're highly technical, then get whatever you want. But right. I think the sound quality for the money that you're paying for a Blue Yeti microphone is is exceptional. Yeah. So rec- highly recommend. Um, I don't edit within Audacity. I just use it to record, and then I pull it into GarageBand to edit because I find that the um, my ability to edit and move stuff around within GarageBand is a little bit more user-friendly mm-hmm. than the Audacity system. So good luck. We hope you um, make a winning thing, Reggie. It's it's a fun kind of a pastime to do. Yeah. Um, 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 um. This one says, I've been following you two since you started the podcast a few years ago. I'm so happy to see that you're still going strong. Can't wait to see the merch you have planned. Keep up the good work. OG listener, Melanie. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you, Melanie. We definitely have some merch planned for the upcoming year. Stay tuned with that. We want to incorporate some stuff with Darcy's dog, who's our mascot. (laughs) (laughs) Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She's currently curled up on the couch right now. Um... Next one says, hi, Darcy and Sarah. I just found your podcast when doing a search for podcast covering some cases in forensic class I'm taking. I really enjoyed your call and pitchfork episode as well as some of the medical coverage by Darcy in head injuries. Mm. Any more significant cases planned for upcoming episodes? Can't wait to hear the rest. Stacy. And I think we kind of talked touched on this earlier. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we do have plans to talk about more cases, especially because I am wrapping up my PhD, God, I hope, knock on wood, but I'm also working in the field of forensic biomechanics now, so um, I'm gaining a lot more knowledge. Obviously, I can't talk about anything I'm working on, but I do have a lot more knowledge for these like high-profile cases, so um, do stay tuned. It, they, I am going to get back to writing writing scripts and presenting cases, but um, I've got a lot on my plate at this moment. But Absolutely. One day. So thank you folks for sharing your thoughts with us, for sending us emails, for your positive comments. There were a couple of negative ones that were very short. Uh, I choose not to share those. <laughs> I'm like, eh. Uh, most of those tend to come through social media and I just mm. like ignore them and move on because I feel like there's some people that just want to say nasty things to anyone and everyone so they can try to ruin people's days. Yeah. So I, I just ignore those. Anyway, um, thank you for sending the emails. You can continue to do that. We are at the BFD podcast at gmail.com if you want to send us something, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. 
we're happy to provide any kind of advice you want as well. Like we are not, you know, experts in podcasting by any stretch of the imagination, but we have been doing this for going on four years now. So, yeah. um, and we have combined with all my podcasts, I probably have three to 400 podcast episodes yeah. under my belt. And Darcy and I have about 160 episodes. So we've been doing this for a while. We're, yeah. we're OGs now at this point. <laughs> Um, if you would like to check out our social media, Darcy, what is that at? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So like Sarah said, we'll be posting the pictures of John List in this bust because if you guys, being true crime fans, you've probably already seen it before, but if you haven't, it's going to blow your mind. Yeah. Um, we will post all the articles that we used for the research on this um, today in the show notes for the show, like we do every week. We don't just make this stuff up out of thin air. We, we research, we pull the articles off the interwebs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll put those in the show notes as well. And please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe. It's super helpful for us. It helps us um, pop higher in searches for different things that people may be looking for. Like, for example, our friend in the forensics class that wanted to hear about Colin Pitchfork. Which yeah. is an episode we did a few years ago. Um, and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.